Corinthians chapter 15, selected verses. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. <clears throat> and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every day, every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We thank God for his word. Amen. Good morning. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is uh, the jewel in the crown of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. He wrote two letters, and I want us to think about it over the next four Sunday mornings as we consider our resurrection hope. should be on the screen, our resurrection hope. This is Paul's uh, logic and reason and rationale in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's uh, three times, uh, let me point them out to you, three times this phrase reoccurs. You may have heard it as it was read. It's there in uh, verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, we are then found to be false witnesses. That's, in a, that's an argument that he's making. His logic is uh, compelling the truth of the gospel to our, to our minds. Verse 17, it appears again. And if Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. That's not to the mind. That's an argument to our consciences. And lastly, down in sentence 32 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's an argument to the heart. 
This is Paul doing some deductive reasoning. He's saying, if this is true, then this is what it means. If Christ is not raised, then here are the implications of that uh, truth, that conviction. And Paul, Paul was the uh, last person on the planet, you could say, who was likely to believe that a human being was both divine, and because he was divine, he should be worshipped. So the question from 1 Corinthians 15, from the uh, account of Paul's life is, what in the world brought faith into Paul's heart? Why was Paul this executioner for the Pharisees, this person who delighted in harming the church, who wasn't a follower of Jesus till God revealed himself miraculously and uniquely to his heart in Acts chapter 9. What happened so that Paul placed his faith in Christ? So 1 Corinthians 15 is this, this massive, this comprehensive argument that addresses Paul's mind, his conscience, and his heart. And it's my conviction and my hope, regardless of the uncertain times in which we live, but they are real and they impress upon us. The resurrection carried Paul into a changed life. It's my hope that as we look at this uh, wonderful passage, this jewel in the crown of the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter, maybe it will change us too as we journey towards Easter. I want us to look at those arguments. Number one, the argument to the mind. The argument to the mind. Verses three to nine, if you've got your Bible in front of you, verse three to nine give you the, uh, the historic case for the resurrection of Jesus. They're three interlocking cogs, three interlocking pieces in your mind. To say from the, the quill of Paul, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ really happened. Here are the three parts. Verse four. Verse four, Paul says, Jesus, the one who the Romans buried, God raised to life and the tomb is therefore empty. That's the logic of verse four. Jesus is buried, he rose, and therefore the empty tomb is a reality. Here's the second one, sentence six, verse six. It's not just the reality that there was an empty tomb. There were hundreds of witnesses, hundreds of witnesses who saw Jesus with their eyes. Some of them touched him with their hands. There were hundreds of them. Here's Paul. He's writing 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 16, 18 years after the historical realities that Jesus died, that Jesus was raised to life again, that there was an empty tomb. So it's around about AD 53, AD 54, something like that. It's 16 or 18 years later, and that means that verse 6, all the people who saw Jesus raised from the dead, you, you don't have to trust Paul. Paul is saying, don't just believe me. Go and talk to them. Most of them are still alive. Some of them may have died, but they're available to you. They, were, they didn't hear the account. They saw Jesus. They were eyewitnesses. They touched him. They heard him. They encountered his personality. They saw his countenance. They saw his hair. They saw that he was dead. They saw he was crucified. They saw that he was raised to life again. Go and check to them. Here's the third part, the third cog. What about the changed lives? In uh, sentence nine, you can see that uh, Paul is claiming it's not just enough that the tomb was empty, that there were witnesses that could have been construed. But what can't be construed is the fact that the risen Jesus, that reality changed people's lives. All the people who lived in Judea, you can go and see them who saw Jesus. You can go and talk to them. But their, life, their lives have changed forever. And their lives have changed forever because of the reality of the resurrection. 
mean, think of the enormous cost of living in the reality that Jesus died and was raised to life again. Think of the fact that uh, if you were to live that out, you knew that your life would be on the line. Your livelihood may be marginalised. Perhaps your spouse, your loved one, who had a different conviction might leave you or be separated from you. Paul says you need to put these three cogs together. It's, it's overwhelming evidence to the mind on the reality of the resurrection. There's the empty tomb, there's the hundreds of eyewitnesses, and there's the power of changed lives. It's a very, very powerful case for the reality of the resurrection as a historical reality. I mean, there's a lot of professors, there's a lot of people with big minds and probably big heads to fit in the big mind who uh, understand this reality of the resurrection and have looked at the primary sources from the first century. And they've written a lot about them. One of them is uh, N.T. Wright. He's an English scholar. He lives up in Oxford. He says this. If the uh, empty tomb was uh, something that people made up, if there'd been no sightings, people could have just believed that the body was stolen. If it had only been the reality of eyewitnesses claiming to have seen him, but the tomb still had the body in it, then everybody would have believed that they were hallucinating. Only if all these parts were true, the empty tomb, the sighting of the risen Jesus by hundreds of people in Judea, the reality of permanently changed lives, people living radically for Jesus, only if those three things were true, those three cogs in the mind, could Christianity have ever begun in the Roman world. He's saying, here's why I believe in the reality of the resurrection. And you can say, well, golly, that was Paul. That was 2,000 years ago. It's okay for him. He lived back then. He could interview people. But it's really hard for me, 2,000 years later, to believe in Paul, let alone believe in Jesus. What you need, what I need, is an experience. I mean, if God showed up in my life like he did in the life of Paul, that would change my life just like it changed Paul. What I need is an experience. I need, I need God to reveal himself to me in a fresh and unique way. Uh, I need to see some of God's glory, like Paul did, Acts chapter 9. Later in the book of Acts, written by Luke, in Acts chapter 26, Paul is a political prisoner. Uh, he's under the rule of um, Festus, and, and the governor of the region is a man called King Agrippa. King Agrippa had been around at the, uh, the time when Jesus died for the sins of the world and was uh, crucified. And Paul is called before Festus and King Agrippa. And uh, they call him before them to say, tell us about the belief system you have. Tell us about your worldview. And Paul starts to speak and he speaks about the birth of Jesus at the very beginning. He speaks about the life of Jesus and he speaks about the resurrection of Jesus. When it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, Festus just stops him in his tracks in Acts chapter 26. And he says, you mentioned the resurrection of Jesus, Paul, you're, you, you're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning has, uh, has driven you insane. You're mad. Which is a kind of interesting way to uh, interrelate to people. And Paul very calmly says, I'm not insane. Most excellent Festus. He's very respectful. What I'm saying is both true and reasonable. He turns to King Agrippa, who was sat next to him, perhaps in a throne or a chair, and he, he said, the king is familiar with these things. He was there. The king is familiar with these things. Um, I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has happened to escape his notice. It was not done in a corner. 
Here's what Paul is saying. Festus, I'm not talking about philosophy. I'm talking about history. Festus, I'm not talking about the subject of Rome. I'm talking about the object of Rome. Festus, I didn't have a subjective experience of Jesus. I didn't want to believe in him. But when I saw he was really raised from the dead, then I had to believe in Jesus. King Agrippa, I want to speak to you as well. King Agrippa, you know the public facts. You know that this, uh, this occurrence didn't happen tucked away in a corner of the Roman world. Agrippa, you knew, you saw these events. You know that the tomb was empty. You know that the guards really uh, saw what happened and what they said after Jesus was on the cross. And when the tomb was empty, you heard their evidence. You know all about the eyewitnesses and what they saw of Jesus. You know these things. And, and yet you don't want to deal with these things. I don't want to deal with them either, King Agrippa. But I call you to do so. I call you to look at the facts. When I saw that Jesus had died and was risen to life again, I had to deal with the reality of the resurrection. But again, that's history. That's history. Think about your neighbours. Think about your friends now. Think about those you used to see every day at, at work, on your street. Perhaps your friends are just like Agrippa. Perhaps they're just like Festus. Perhaps they don't want to deal with uh, Christianity at all. They, Easter is just an inconvenience. It's a, an excuse for a nice holiday. Christmas is great because you receive gifts, but it's expensive. And here's Paul saying to them, Agrippa and Festus, what he would say to us today, you need to look at the historical claims of Christianity. You, you need to listen to the fact that there were eyewitnesses. There's not just one. There were hundreds of them. You need to think about the fact that this reality changed lives. Christianity was, uh, was born out of the truth of the resurrection. You can see on the slide, belief is not the missing piece. This is in a modern understanding that's completely wrong. It's not like I need a religious crutch to make my life better. It's not like I need to believe in Jesus in lockdown so it gives me hope and then I forget about him when we're free to go about our everyday life again. Paul would say to us today, we don't need a new experience of Jesus. He didn't believe in Jesus because he, he lacked fulfillment. I didn't want to believe in Jesus, Paul would say. He was a threat to everything I had. I would have lost my status. I, my whole worldview would change. My, my future was, was mapped out before me. I was going up the, the ladder. Jesus is a threat to everything I ever had. He's a threat to my righteousness. I have a great standing with my friends. He's, he's a threat to my own life. I don't want to believe in him. People would be after my head if I follow Jesus. But I had to believe in Jesus because of the evidence for the resurrection. And Jesus says to us through the pen of Paul across the ages, let the reality of the resurrection, let this evidence press upon you. We all have to deal with the evidence, the historical evidence for the resurrection. Upon it, Christianity stands or falls. You can't just look at the facts and say, well, that doesn't really work for me. Sometimes people saw him, hundreds of them. And, and how do you, non-Christian friend, how do you account for the reality that Jesus, the risen Jesus, was seen by hundreds of people? Oh, um, it was a hallucination. Well, hallucinations don't happen to groups of people, let alone hundreds of people. You have to account for the fact that people lived changed lives. 
they live changed lives knowing that if they follow Jesus, they may well end up in, in the theater, torn apart by lions. You have to account for the fact that people who follow Jesus risk great things for him. They, they left comfort and they traveled. They left their nets behind and their livelihood and they trusted in King Jesus. They wanted nothing more than to proclaim his name. How do you account for that? It couldn't have been a hoax. It wasn't a hallucination. I mean, you and I know that uh, people don't rise from the dead. That never happens. But it did with Jesus. God raised his dead son from the dead. That's the claim of Christianity. So it's an argument to our minds. And, and as we engage with these, these evidences, these three cogs in our mind, at the same time, the, the logic is not just remote reasoning. It actually exposes a deep need in my heart, and I think in your heart too. It addresses one of my most profound needs. One of the reasons people love uh, Marvel, they love DC, they love Disney, they love superhero uh, films and stories is because we all know that we need a savior. We need someone to rescue us from COVID-19. We need the politicians to do a great job. We, if we need a ventilator because we're so sick and we're in hospital, we need someone to rescue us. But Christianity says you don't just need a rescuer. You don't need a, a fanciful rescuer who's a product of your own uh, scheme or worldview or needs or understanding. It's not a projection of our desires. We actually need a risen Lord. We need a, a Lord with edges. We need a Lord with a capital L, someone who's not a figment of our imagination, but someone who's a historical reality, someone whose power is measured by their goodness, whose goodness is, is met by their power. We need this, this duality in, in our Savior. And the great irony is a savior who is of our own imaginations will never be great enough to fulfill our, our needs. He'll never be able to cross our will. He'll never be able to confront us with historical reality. If I create my own God, my own savior, he'll never be able to give me comfort. Only a real God, only a real God like Jesus, when I hate myself for doing a bad job, can affirm me and say, I love you. Only a real Jesus, when you're going astray, when you've walked the other way, maybe for a day, maybe for a decade, knowing that what you're doing is not his will, only a real Jesus will bring you back. Only a real God who's got all power, whose voice is known by the wind and the waves. Only the God with that sort of power can comfort you when you're afraid in the, the season of COVID-19. You see, each one of us needs a Lord. We need a Lord that we can believe in, who doesn't just meet our needs. We need a Lord who we believe in because he's true. Because the Bible says so, because historical evidence is overwhelming for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's, it's a truth, an argument to our mind. Secondly, these are far quicker, relax. There's an argument for our conscience. There's an argument for our conscience. Look at uh, sentence 17. Sentence 17, Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, you're still in your sins. Now, how did Paul get past his past? It's there in sentence nine as well. In sentence nine, he makes a very brief allusion to his history, his own past life. He's saying, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. I'm the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church. Here was Paul that for fun, this wolf-like character 
He killed people with glee. He sought people's permission from the religious authorities and then he went and did his dirty work. But now he's in the church. He's surrounded by friends and relatives of those people he killed. I mean, what would have that been like? How could he ever have lived with himself? How could he ever get his confidence back? How can you and I get our, or get past our pasts when perhaps we're full of pain and regrets and guilt? Do you know what Paul did? Sentence nine, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But read on, look at sentence 10 and 11. But I'm the most successful apostle. Here's the gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus. And only the gospel has power to create this kind of self-image, this kind of realism, this kind of joy and sorrow at the same time. So that you're not defined by your past. And you and I, we're tempted to base our self-image on our performance. So uh, whether we meet standards, when we meet standards that other people impose upon us, or maybe we impose them ourselves. When, when we do a good job, we give ourselves a thumbs up. We give ourselves a, a well-deserved pat on the back. We're happy when we're doing a good job, when we meet people's expectations, when people are big. But we're never humble when that happens. If we fail people's expectations, if we don't meet their standards, then the opposite happens. It flips. If we're failures, then we're not bold. We, we, we shrink into our shell. But here's Paul. How did Paul deal with his past? How was he no longer defined by his past? And how can you no longer be defined by what you've done in your past? In Christ, the gospel says, we know we're so wicked that Jesus had to die for us. That's what Easter's all about. But the third day, the resurrection also says we're so loved that Jesus was glad to die for us. He was willing. How can Paul move ahead from what he's done, from the people he's murdered and killed, from Stephen in, in Acts as well, where people are clapping at the feet of Paul, laying down their cloaks before him, showing honor and respect and venerance. Paul can move ahead and you and I can move ahead because of this reality. I'm no longer in my sins. My past does not define me because of the resurrection. I mean, think about it. If you uh, commit a crime, you get nicked, you get convicted, you go down, you go to prison for, let's say, two years. How do you know when you get out that your debt has been paid? I mean, what's the sign? What's the proof? You don't get a piece of paper, I don't think. It's never happened to me yet. But how do you know that... Uh, your debt is paid. How do you know that you're out, that you're free? They open the door to you. There you are in prison. Your freedom is taken away from you. You're incarcerated. But how do you know you're free? The door is open. The door opens and you're out. You're free. You can breathe uh, air again as a free person. And here's the gospel of Easter. Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world. How do you know that Jesus paid for every sin in full? Because the door was opened. This big stone that was in front of his tomb was rolled away. The door was open. He was free. He got out. He'd done his work. Jesus was satisfied. So across history, there's a huge banner that says, paid in full. You're no longer defined by your past, Christian friend.
That's why Paul says if Christ is not raised, those sins still need to be paid for. You're still in jail, so to speak, of your own enoughness, your own righteousness. But let's flip that around. Let's turn that around. Here's Paul's logic. If Christ is not raised, you're still in your sin. So the question is, where are you? If you're no longer in your sins, then where are you, Christian? The answer, you're in him. You've been united with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're no longer looked at by your heavenly father in your own enoughness, which isn't enough. Your own righteousness that's far too small. Here's the gospel. The gospel is you will know God's smile, that sweet reality of knowing him. It's called communion with God. You will know that to the degree that you understand where you are this morning. You're not in your room, spiritually speaking. You are located with Christ on high. You're in him because of the cross and the empty tomb. You're no longer in your sins. And to the degree you know that, you're free from your past. You're free from what people say. You're liberated from seeking approval in the wrong places. God will be big. People will be small. You're put into him by God's free grace. But that means you can't live your life the way you've always lived it. Because Jesus is the risen Lord. He's real. He's true as a historical character. You have to live the way he says. Jesus doesn't just wipe your slate clean. He throws the slate away. And so now if you're a Christian this morning, you can say there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's, it's called a preposition. It's a hiding word. It's a location word. And Paul's logic is because of the resurrection, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, God hides you in his son. So when he looks at you, he loves you because he sees his son's sacrifice and you're covered in his enoughness, his righteousness, not standing in your own. But here's the third argument. It's right at the end of the passage that we read today. It's an argument not to our head in terms of our logic. It's not in terms of our conscience. It's, it's an argument to the heart, to our affections in verses 30 to 32. It's pretty interesting. Paul has this enormous confidence in his ministry. It's enormous confidence that he can do almost whatever uh, it takes to get the gospel out. Here's Paul. He's facing death every single day. And he talks about wild beasts in the sentence 30 to 32. Now, nobody knows in the world what he's talking about from our perspective of history. It's one of those incidents that happened that people at the time would have known what it meant. Oh, yeah, that's when Paul. But we don't know what it means. But here's what he's saying. For the sake of the people I love, every single day I face death. I don't care what it costs to do the right thing. I will do the right thing so that the gospel of Jesus Christ goes out into the world. I don't care what it costs me to love people. I'll lay down my life to put the life of other people first. I'll do absolutely anything, even if it means facing death. Now, for Paul, his logic again is, if the dead weren't raised, if Jesus wasn't raised, if I wasn't going to be raised in him, there's no reason at all to live an unselfish life, an other-centered life. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, life is just an appetite. Life isn't a box of chocolates, but life is the reality where the strong eat the weak. Life is eating, so eat. Life is drinking, so drink. 
But when I know Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and death has been defeated, absolutely defeated to its last drop, I can do what's right, even if that means facing death in the face. And the Bible says it's right to be angry at death. It's right to be upset when you see the figures that are increasing and climbing globally from coronavirus. Jesus was angry at death. It's in John 11, not just there, but John 11 sees the effects of sin and in the life of Lazarus. And he's there in the tomb. And Jesus is upset and cries over the fact that one of his closest friends has died. But that was before Easter. After Easter and after the reality that Jesus died and then was raised to life, there's no reason to ever be afraid of death again. That's what it means if death has been defeated. There's a picture on the screen now. There's a, a pastor called uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, and he was driving. His wife uh, had died, and he's driving his children to her funeral. With all the emotions that were whirring in his heart, I can't even imagine how he managed to say it, but he was looking for an illustration. He was looking for a way to communicate to his children the reality of death in this side of Easter, this side of the resurrection. So they were, they were in their car and a lorry passed them by. Following the lorry, there was a shadow that was cast by the sun. Lorry first, shadow second. And he turned to his daughter and said, do you see that truck? Do you see the shadow of the truck? Would you rather be hit by the truck or by the shadow? His daughter said, the shadow. Well, I really want you to know that the truck of death hit Jesus. So mummy only has to go through the shadow of death. Friends, you may be full of fear this morning. What if I catch the virus? What if death comes naturally or because of a pandemic globally? You may be afraid of death if you work for the NHS and you face it whenever you go in to serve and seek to care for people. But as a Christian, because of the gospel, because of the empty tomb, because of the resurrection of Jesus, Paul says, because Jesus has said, you no longer need to be afraid of absolutely anything. So let the resurrection fill you with confidence, incredible confidence. Let it argue with your conscience let it argue with your heart so that you can live a life of courage you can you can risk you can risk for people who need stuff you can risk for people who need to hear who need practical support at this time let it argue with your conscience and your heart but let it argue with your mind that your savior is real he's historically real he's eternally real that's what the resurrection is all about it's an argument for your conscience, for your mind, and for your heart. Let me pray.